Hi, this is Dr. Ted Cole. Welcome to Life, Health, and Healing. You can visit our websites at www.colecenter.com, and that's spelled C-O-L-E. We have Cincinnati Hyperbarics and Dr. Vitamins associated on that site. I also post on Facebook different topics, and that is again on the Cole Center for Healing, Cincinnati Hyperbarics, and Dr. Vitamin pages. Today we're going to talk about vitamin D and all the things that go along with it. It's a critical agent and it's really easy to treat, as you'll see. So let's go into some of the details regarding vitamin D and its importance to our health. So here are some of the symptoms of vitamin D deficiency, and this would be in the short run. Regular sickness or infection. So if you've got recurring flus and viruses and colds, could be a vitamin D deficiency contributing to that. Fatigue, that's a common one. <laughs> I probably see that more than anything else in my practice. Bone and back pain, so muscle aches, those are really common. Low mood, they don't quite describe it as depression, but I would count it within that parameter there. So if you're feeling low, it could be vitamin D, particularly during these winter months coming up. Impaired wound healing, so you just don't recover very well. Hair loss. Now, not all baldness is going to be due to vitamin D deficiency, obviously, but if hair loss is occurring suddenly and it's something that you're not used to, that might be because of vitamin D. And again, muscle pain in general, so it could be arms, legs, not just the back pain and everything associated with it. Now, in the long term, vitamin D deficiency can create all kinds of nasty issues. That includes cardiovascular conditions, heart attack, stroke, so on, autoimmune problems, so thyroid being attacked, autoimmune thyroiditis or Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis or any of the connective tissue disorders, neurological diseases, tremors and so on, increased infections that continues both short and long term, complications in pregnancy, and lots of cancers especially breast, prostate, and colon, which are the three most common in the world. So vitamin D associated with extremely common conditions, cardiovascular issues, a big problem. Infections, of course, now we're dealing with the whole COVID thing here, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So vitamin D is a pretty critical one, and you can find information about these different symptoms on medical news today. Dot com, and it was published November 7th, 2019. So as we know, vitamin D is required for life. And in order to make vitamin D, you need sunshine. So the whole madness about avoid sun, don't get in the sun, wear sunscreen constantly is pretty much nonsense. The key there is just don't get burnt. It's the burning that causes damage, not sun exposure. We are required and basically for life to be exposed to the sun. Vitamin D is just one of those expressions of how much we need sunshine in our lives, other than the effect on our mood. And remember, low mood was a sign of vitamin D deficiency. So here are some of the risk factors for vitamin D deficiency. Premature birth, skin pigmentation. The darker the skin, the lower the production of vitamin D or the more sunshine is needed for its production. Low sunshine exposure. As I mentioned, we need sunshine in order to manufacture vitamin D. Obesity. 
extremely common, unfortunately, today. Malabsorption and advanced age. That was noted in Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology, Volume 92, September 2006. So the question here then becomes, first, how common is vitamin D deficiency? So lab norms are typically listed as being between 30 and 100, and that's listed as NG slash ML, or nanogram per milliliter. That is probably the most common way, at least in the U.S., of typically listing these norms. But these norms, and you notice that range 30 to 100, that's a big range. (laughs) So let's see how much people have in terms of deficiency. So this was a National Health and Nutrition Examination survey from 2005 to 2006, almost 4,500 participants. And they defined vitamin D deficiency as less than or equal to 20 nanograms per milliliter. Now, the other measurement you can see is 50, or excuse me, 50 is the measurement on this one, NMOL slash L, or nanomoles per liter. So that was their cutoff, either less than or equal to 20 nanograms per milliliter or 50 nanomoles per liter. As you can see, in our lab, 30 is considered the bottom, but in this study, they're using 20. So the vitamin D deficiency overall was almost 42%. Highest rate was seen in blacks at 82%, and then Hispanics were next with almost 70%. So as you can see, the darker the skin, the more likely you are to have a vitamin D deficiency. Again, just a matter of sunshine and the way the body works. That was in Prevalence and Correlates of Vitamin E Deficiency in U.S. Adults Nutrition Research, Volume 31, January 2011. Here we looked at healthy infants and toddlers, about 380 of them, who just came in for a routine health visit. Again, they're looking at less than or equal to 20 nanograms per milliliter. At that rate, the deficiency was 12.1%. And they noted that 40% had levels below 30 nanograms per milliliter. So depending on which cutoff you use, you're going to get different results. But compared to the other one, we're again seeing about a 40% deficiency you're using that 30 nanogram per milliliter. Now, here's the scary part. Three of these individuals showed signs of rickett rickets on their x-rays and 32 percent almost a third of these had evidence already of demineralization meaning they're already starting to have bone loss remember these are infants and toddlers so is this is starting at a young age not something in the elderly they're already starting to lose bone mass and that was published prevalence of vitamin d deficiency among healthy infants and toddlers Archives of Pediatric Adolescent Medicine, 2008. Now, how about adolescence? We've covered adults and kids. Here's adolescence. And again, these were done during annual physicals. They're using a level of 15 or less nanograms per milliliter. And at that rate, almost 25% were deficient. They were below or equal to 15. So... 
that was pretty bad. And almost 5% were less than 8 nanogram per milliliter of vitamin D, severely deficient. But if you use a broader definition, 42% were vitamin D deficient if you look at greater than or equal to 20, which is still really low in my opinion. So we're seeing a significant number of people that are deficient, and they also found that vitamin D levels were 24% lower during the winter compared with summer, which makes sense, particularly when you're in here like we are in the Midwest where there's no sunshine early in the winter. That was published prevalence of vitamin D deficiency among healthy adolescents. adolescents. Again, Archives Pediatric Adolescent Medicine, 2004. So when you look at not just the U.S., but in developing countries as well, rickets is a major health problem. This one was in Saudi Arabia, but it probably correlates with a number of countries. And they looked at infants under the age of 14 months. And 283 infants were diagnosed with nutritional rickets due to vitamin D deficiency. And that was between the ages of 6 and 14 months. Now, 70% were exclusively breastfed, 23% were breastfed until the age of a year. The most frequent presentation, the most common symptoms were convulsions, followed by chest infections and stomach and colon upset, such as diarrhea. And that was about a third of those patients showing each of those symptoms. And they recommend that, that every breastfed infant take 200 IUs of vitamin D per day. Now, this is not to discourage you from breastfeeding. It's still the best way to go, but just recognize that vitamin D might not be at sufficient levels for these infants. So go ahead and supplement them. 200 IUs per day is not a large dose. You can find that easily. That was published, Epidemiology of Nutritional Rickets in Children. Saudi Journal of Kidney Disease and Transplants, 2009. So, the strongest links to what are called the beneficial roles of UVB, i.e. sunlight, <laughs> and vitamin D to date, are for bone and muscle diseases. But, there's also a lot of evidence from a variety of studies that vitamin D reduces the risk of cancers, especially colon, breast, and prostate cancer again. But also includes lung and ovarian, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and another dozen types of cancer. It also, again, reduces the risk of autoimmune diseases, multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure and stroke, so just go through that list and you find some of the most common problems we have in our healthcare system today. Here's a single nutrient that might be able to reverse some of that. That was published in Epidemiology of Disease Risk in Relation to Vitamin D Insufficiency, Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology, Volume 92, 2006. So here's then the big question. What is the optimal level of vitamin D? What level should you really shoot for? Regardless of what the labs say, because I'll tell you right now, the labs are wrong. So as we noted, vitamin D can affect cardio cardiovascular issues, including blood pressure. 
It does that by its effect on the kidneys, the parathyroid hormone levels, heart function itself, inflammation, and calcium buildup in the veins. Studies consistently show that levels of vitamin D below 25 nanogram per milliliters are associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and death by that problem. And as we just looked at, probably if you average it out, 40% of people in these tests were at below 25 nanogram per milliliter. So a quarter of the population right there already susceptible to a lot of problems. And that was published and it's called Epidemiology of Cardiovascular Risks and Events, Best Practice in Research, Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, Volume 25, 2011. Here's another study and what they did was they looked at other studies and they were looking at the association between vitamin D and cardiovascular risk. So they looked at a total of 24 research articles that have been published. So this included almost 66,000 people in this analysis. Yeah, so it's pretty robust. <laughs> and there was a linear inverse association between vitamin D levels and risk of cardiovascular disease. And they went up to 60 animals per milliliter. So a straight line correlation. The higher the vitamin D level, the lower your risk of cardiovascular issues and problems. That is called circulating 25-hydroxyvitamin D and risk of cardiovascular disease in the journal circulation cardiovascular quality and outcomes published in 2012 here's another one and this one almost 8200 hypertension patients were given vitamin d for one year at the end of that year 71 percent of those people who had high blood pressure no longer had high blood pressure so just the addition of vitamin d fixed almost three-quarters of the cases of high blood pressure. <laughs> so high blood pressure, very common problem. If you have it, get your vitamin D level checked. And I'll tell you what levels to shoot for later. But definitely get it checked and get on vitamin D. That is titled The Association Between Serum 25 OHD Status and Blood Pressure and Participants of a Community-Based Program Taking Vitamin D Supplements, published in Nutrients in 2017. Also, and this is something that's been noted before, but the evidence strongly indicates that there's a role in, in vitamin D and the beginning and progression of multiple sclerosis. If you have high vitamin D levels at the time of a first event, first time you have symptoms with MS, there is a decreased risk of MS among the offspring whose mothers had high vitamin D levels. So the higher the level, the safer you are. And that was published, Vitamin D and Multiple Sclerosis, Epidemiology, Immunology, and Genetics, uh, Current Opinions in Neurology, 2012. This was an interesting one as well, and I think you'll find it. So it's proposed that Vitamin D deficiency can contribute to the risk of developing schizophrenia. 
And they're saying, the authors that is, that this could explain the diverse findings, including the season of birth, the latitude gradients associated with schizophrenia, the increased risk in dark-skinned migrants to certain countries, and the urban-rural gradient, meaning if you're out in the sticks, <laughs> you get more sunshine probably. Whether you're in the city, probably not so much. So they did a case control study based on blood samples in infants, and they did see a significant association between vitamin D levels as an infant and the risk of schizophrenia. So the lower the level of vitamin D as an infant, the higher the risk of schizophrenia later in life. That was called Developmental Vitamin D Deficiency and Risk of Schizophrenia, 10-Year Update published in Schizophrenia Bulletin, November 2010. In 1992, for the first time, specific receptors for vitamin T were found in prostate cells. Now, vitamin D, as we noted, is important in cancer. And I'm going to read this and then explain it. it vitamin D exerts pro-differentiating, anti-proliferative, and anti-metastatic effects on prostate cancer cells, meaning it keeps normal cells from turning into cancer cells. It helps keep cancer cells from dividing, and it helps keep cancer cells from spreading. All important issues if you're dealing with cancer. So the, all the information coming from the studies is that low levels of UV radiation and vitamin D are associated with an increased risk of prostate cancer in men. And notice again, low levels of UV, meaning not enough sunshine. So again, if you're not getting out in the sun and getting enough sunshine, you're not producing much vitamin D, puts you at risk, as this study indicates, for prostate cancer, amongst other things. That was called Vitamin D in Health and Disease, Vitamin D in the Epidemiology of Prostate Cancer. The journal, Seminars and Dialysis, Volume 18, 2005. This study looked at the addition of both high and low-dose vitamin D to patients with advanced colorectal cancer who were also taking chemotherapy. So we're looking at patients already with cancer, they're already getting treated with chemo, so we're going to see what effect vitamin D has for them. So the high-dose treatment with vitamin D was 8,000 units per day, and that was given for two weeks, and then they dropped it to 4,000 IUs per day after that. The low-dose treatment group just received 400 units of vitamin D per day. The results? High-dose vitamin D3 significantly reduced the risk of death by 36%, so over a third. The length of time before the disease worsened was also significantly longer for the patients in the treatment room, uh, and that includes both groups, but the high-dose group was better. The rate of diarrhea was 12% in the low-dose group, but only 1% in the high-dose group. So overall benefits, again, just with some vitamin D here with colorectal cancel patients. And if you're familiar with that, you know that diarrhea can be a horrible kind of effect from this illness. So we're seeing some significant improvement there. 
That was titled Effect of High Dose versus Standard Dose Vitamin D3 Supplementation on Progression-Free Survival Among Patients with Advanced or Metastatic Colorectal Cancer, the Sunshine, sun, excuse me, Sunshine Randomized Clinical Trial. That was published in JAMA in 2019. This also was a study that looked at other studies. So they're going back and reviewing the evidence here. And there were almost 32,000 cases. So there were almost 32,000 patients uh, that had breast cancer that were included with this. So amongst breast cancer patients, high vitamin D levels were associated with lower breast cancer mortality and overall mortality. So in breast cancer patients, if your high level of vitamin D was there, you died a lot less. <laughs> and not only for breast cancer, but also from other factors as well. So it really reduced the overall death rate. That is titled Vitamin D Intake, Blood 25 OHD Levels, and Breast Cancer Risk or Mortality, a metal analysis published in British Journal of Cancer 2014. There are a couple active forms of vitamin D. So once you take vitamin D, it converts into things. One is called calcitriol, and the other is cal called calcitpotriol. These block a mechanism that enables cancer cells to become drug resistant. And it's called the MRP1, or multi-drug resistance associated protein. And as the article notes, about 90% of chemotherapy failures are due to acquired drug resistance. And yet here is vitamin D, which helps prevent that from occurring, meaning you no longer have 90% failure rate. <laughs> you don't have the resistance. Vitamin D can significantly then affect the outcome, even if you're doing chemotherapy. So that is called calcitriol and calcipotriol modulate transport activity of ABC transporters and exhibit selective cytotoxicity in MRP1 overexpressing cells. That was published in Drug Metabolism Disposition 2018. Now this one is relative to what we're experiencing today as this is being broadcast here. Vitamin D deficiency is known to contribute to acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a major cause of death associated with COVID-19. So we'll get to that a little bit more later, but it would be nice if people were being given vitamin D in order to help prevent this problem. I think that might actually reduce the death rate from COVID-19. That was called vitamin D deficiency, contributes directly to the acute respiratory distress syndrome, published in Thorax, volume 70. This was another study, and they looked at over 4,700 hospitalized patients, and most of these patients were being treated with either 5,000 or 10,000 units a day of vitamin D. A few were treated with even larger amounts because they had more serious conditions and they were treated with up to 50,000 units per day of vitamin D. They note there have been no cases of vitamin D3 induced hypercalcemia or any adverse events attributable to vitamin D3 supplementation in any patient. So extremely safe. 
So over 4,700 patients, high levels of vitamin D being given for a wide variety of conditions, no problems. And hypercalcemia, or increased calcium levels in the blood, is one of the side effects that has been attributed to vitamin D. As we're seeing here, they didn't see any of that at all. And again, over 4,700 patients. That is entitled daily oral dosing of vitamin D3 using 5,000 to 50,000 international units a day in long-term hospitalized patients. Insights from a seven-year experience. That was published in Journal of Steroid Biochemical Molecular Biology, Volume 189. This one, I think, really should hit home because I've talked about this my patients a long time, and I've talked to other people. I've lectured on this before. But this one shows that if 100,000 65-year-old women take 1,000 milligrams of calcium with vitamin D every day, 5,890 hip fractures and 3,820 other fractures would be prevented. Sounds great, right? Well, unfortunately as many as 5,917 heart attacks and 4,373 strokes would be caused by that kind of treatment. So the risks outweigh the benefits, and yet, oh my gosh, OBGYNs and family docs, they have been giving women this kind of treatment for years. I mean, <laughs> they're trying to prevent, you know, osteopenia and osteoporosis, but they're contributing then to the effect of cardiovascular issues. So they're doing a lot more harm than they are benefit. And there are other ways to treat and prevent osteoporosis and osteopenia. So we need to stop that. That was titled The Predicted Lifetime Cost and Health Consequences of Calcium and Vitamin D Supplementation for Fracture Prevention, The Impact of Cardiovascular Events, published in Osteoporosis International in 2016. Here's a good one. It is projected that raising the minimum year-round serum vitamin D level to 40 to 60 nanogram per milliliters would prevent approximately 58,000 new cases of breast cancer and 49,000 new cases of colorectal cancer each year and three-fourths of deaths from these diseases in the United States and Canada. This is just getting your vitamin D levels up amazing preventative risk here. I mean, to prevent three-fourths of deaths from breast and colorectal cancer? No, there's no drug in the world that does that. If this were a drug, this would be shoved out there in the media. Everybody would be talking about it. Every doctor in the world may be you know, telling people to take this. And notice the level. 60 nanogram per milliliter giving the best protection. So, give it away. What's the best range of vitamin D level to have on blood testing? Above 60 nanogram per milliliter. And they go on to note, this kind of intake and reaching that level of vitamin D are also expected to reduce fatality rates of patients who have breast, colorectal, or prostate cancer by half. So reducing death rates by half of those patients I mean, just an astounding number. That was titled Vitamin D for Cancer Prevention, Global Perspective, published in Annals of Epidemiology, 2009. Here's another one. This 
author, these authors state a projected 50% reduction of brace, breast cancer occurrence could potentially be achieved by lifelong maintenance of a serum vitamin D level greater than 52 nanogram per milliliter. So again, close to that 60 number, which I advise 50% reduction in breast cancer. Half. Oh my God, think of not only the savings financially, but in misery and depression. I mean, all the things that go along with cancer. Good Lord, to cut that in half. I mean, everybody in the world should be doing this. That is called What is the Dose-Response Relationship Between Vitamin D and Cancer Risk? Published in Nutrition Reviews, Volume 65. Another one, again, finding strong evidence to support that vitamin D could help prevent breast cancer. But this one shown a little bit different light on it. And they are saying that they think that exposure earlier in life, particularly during breast development, may be most relevant. So what does it mean? Get your kids on vitamin D. Start the supplementation early. Get those levels up early in life. Prevent the aftermath of low levels from occurring at all. That is called Vitamin D and Reduced Risk of Breast Cancer, a population-based case control study. And that was published in Cancer Epidemiology, Biomarkers Prevention, 2007. Here we get to the very relevant part <laughs> for modern day life in this time of the virus. And this goes on to say, to reduce the risk of infection of influenza and or COVID-19, consider taking 10,000 units per day of vitamin D for a few weeks so you can build your levels up and then you take at least 5,000 units per day after that. Again, the goal should be to raise your vitamin D levels above 60 nanograms per milliliters. So the key here, it's really best to get blood work done, find out what your vitamin D level is, and then take enough to get to that level of vitamin D. And again, I recommend 60 and above for that, as does this author. If you get infected with COVID-19, higher vitamin D doses will be required to rapidly increase vitamin D concentrations. And my suggestion, and I'm going to get to these letter two, is 50,000 units a day for at least a few days to get vitamin D levels up if you have COVID really or any other kind of infection going on. That is called vitamin D supplements could reduce risk of influenza and COVID-19 infection and death. Published in the OMNS 2020. This study was done to see if vitamin D levels correlated with the incidence of viral respiratory tract infections, i.e. flus and colds and COVID. So they looked at 195 people and 98.5 actually completed the study, which is important. And they found that if you could get your level up to 38 nanogram per milliliter or more, that was associated with a twofold reduction in the risk of developing acute respiratory tract infections and also reduced the number of days that you would be ill. My guess is that if you cut it in half that way, going up to 60 and above, you get even better results. That is called serum 25 hydroxyvitamin D in the incidence of acute viral respiratory tract infection in healthy adults, published in PLOS One, 2010. 
So we kind of touched on this before, but how safe is vitamin D supplementation? As this article notes, symptomatic vitamin D toxicity is uncommon and elevated levels of vitamin D don't strongly correlate with clinical symptoms or total levels of calcium. That was called vitamin D toxicity, 16 year retrospective study in an academic medical center published in Lab Medicine 2018. These authors looked at a literature search. So they went back, looked at the different studies that were done, and they checked PubMed for this, which is a site you can look at all kinds of different research articles. And they were looking for cases of vitamin D intoxication and overdose. And they state, even though vitamin D intoxication is rare, does occur, and therefore you need to be recognizing it if it happens. They were looking at ranges between 150 and 1,220 nanogram per milliliters. So big range there again. Most of the people reported vomiting, dehydration, pain, and loss of appetite as their symptoms for increased levels of vitamin D. That was published in Development of Vitamin D Toxicity from Overcorrection of Vitamin D Deficiency, a review of case reports, published in Nutrients 2018. But here's the thing. Vitamins and minerals don't work in isolation. They, they are part of an overall system. It's kind of like an assembly line. If you've got six different steps, every step has to be functioning properly in order to get the proper end result. If any one of those steps is not functioning properly, things don't work well. And that's a big fault with a large percentage of research, particularly in terms of when they're looking at nutritional agents. They only look at one agent, which really doesn't work that way. We are not built to simply work on one agent. We are an assembly line. We need multiple things in order to work appropriately because there are nutrient interactions that occur and they got to take be taken into account when you're supplementing with something. This is often ignored by modern research and unfortunately modern medicine. So here's some things that go into more of the toxicity issues. As this paper says, although the toxicity of vitamin D has conventionally been attributed to its induction of high levels of calcium, animal studies show that toxic endpoints observed in response to large amounts of vitamin D are not associated from the calcium levels. So what's the explanation? There has to be a different reason for why vitamin D toxicity can be developed. They propose that the vitamin D exerts toxicity by inducing a deficiency of vitamin K. In other words, it's not really due to the vitamin D itself, it's because it affects the vitamin K levels. It's supported by observation animals deficient in vitamin K or vitamin K dependent proteins exhibit almost exact same features as animals fed toxic doses of vitamin D. Also, vitamin D and vitamin K inhibitor warfarin have similar toxicity profiles and exert toxicity increasingly when combined. So each can be a problem, but when you add them together, even worse. They go on to say that vitamin A protects against the toxicity of vitamin D by decreasing the expression of vitamin K-dependent proteins 
and therefore spares vitamin K, prevents it from becoming deficient. That is called vitamin D toxicity redefined, vitamin K and the molecular mechanism, published in Medical Hypothesis in 2007. So there they're looking at vitamin A, vitamin K, and vitamin D and how they interact, and that maybe it's really a vitamin A problem or a vitamin K problem. It's not really a vitamin D problem. Let's look at another one. They note here that a high dose of vitamin K2 inhibited the increase in calcium deposition in the blood vessels and in the kidneys. This is induced by vitamin D, meaning vitamin D helps with calcium absorption. And taking vitamin D by itself, you get increased calcification in areas that should not occur. Vitamin K2 inhibited that process. So they conclude a pharmacological dose, meaning not something that is the RDA, something that actually works well, <laughs> a vitamin K2 might be useful for prevention and treatment of atherosclerosis with calcification, i.e. hardening of the arteries. That's titled Effect of Vitamin K2 on Experimental Calcinosis Induced by Vitamin D2 in Rats Off Tissue, International Journal of Vitamin Nutritional Research, 1996. Another article, vitamin K2 may be a useful adjunct for the treatment of osteoporosis, along with vitamin D and calcium, which is actually better than biphosphonate therapy, but without the toxicity effects. It can also significantly reduce morbidity and mortality in cardiovascular health by reducing vascular calcification. In other words, it can help prevent heart attacks, stroke, it helps prevent deaths, from these things, and it helps because it's reducing the calcification that occurs when you use just vitamin D and calcium by itself, or even just vitamin D by itself. And as they note, vitamin K2 appears promising in the areas of diabetes, cancer, and osteoarthritis. Also, there's concern amongst people about vitamin K and its effect on clotting. This article goes on to say vitamin K use in warfarin therapy is safe and can actually improve control, although you might have to adjust the dose of the warfarin, which would mean actually you're going to decrease the dose. So you need less medication if you need it at all. But vitamin K is very safe in using with warfarin. That is titled Vitamins K1 and K2, the Emerging Group of Vitamins Required for Human Health, published Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism, in 2017. Now, this looks at some direct competition here. So they used patients which were given just K2. They were patients that were using just vitamin D. There was a group that got K2 and D3 and a control group, and they just had diet. And these patients were treated for two years. The results, the combined therapy with vitamin K2 and D3 markedly increased bone mineral density. In other words, helped reverse osteomalation, osteoporosis. And importantly, the bone marker showed that both formation and resorption activity in the bone were increased. Because when you use the drugs, what they're doing is they are only stopping the destruction of the bone. 
bone is destroyed for a reason over time it weakens so what happens with the drugs is as time goes on you have more and more old or weak bone and you actually get more fractures over time with drug therapy the reverse is happening with vitamin D and vitamin K combination the bone was actually getting healthier and stronger they also looked at coagulation function so again no bleeding problems and they had no adverse reactions that was titled effective continuous combined therapy with vitamin K2 and vitamin D3 on bone mineral density and coagulofibrinolysis function in postmenopausal women published in Maturitas it's M A T U R I T A S 2002 Again, we're looking at some of these same issues. The study notes, increased consumption of calcium supplements can increase the risk for heart disease and can be connected with the positive calcium into the tissues and the blood vessels. Vitamin K2, however, is one that can inhibit this calcification. So it can prevent arterial calcification and stiffening. These are two major reasons why heart attacks and strokes occur. Vitamin K2 can optimize calcium use in the body, preventing any potential negative health impacts associated with increased calcium intake. Can't be more clear. Vitamin K2, if you're just taking vitamin D or vitamin D and calcium, you're setting yourself up for problems. K2 prevents this. And as they note, Vitamin K, particularly as vitamin K2, is nearly non-existent in processed food, with little being consumed even in a healthy Western diet. So, vitamin K2 supplements are the way to make sure you're getting enough intake in order to get these beneficial effects. That was titled Proper Calcium Use. Vitamin K2 is a promoter of bone and cardiovascular health. Integrated Medicine 2015. Now for the next one, magnesium. Magnesium is important and part of about 300 or more different processes in the body, but it also helps in the activation of vitamin D. So all of the enzymes that metabolize vitamin D require magnesium. So it acts as a cofactor in these enzyme reactions in the liver and kidneys. So it's essential, as they say, to ensure that you get the recommended amount of magnesium so that you get the optimal benefits of vitamin D. But the standard diet in the U.S. contains about 50% of just the RDA for magnesium and as much as three quarters of the people are consuming a magnesium deficient diet and that's the RDA which is low. RDA means basically what is the lowest amount you can take in order that we don't see evidence of very quick illness. It's it's a horrible measure and completely, you know, out of sorts with reality. And that was titled Role of Magnesium in Vitamin D Activation and Function, Journal of American Osteopathic Association, 2018. Another study, again, magnesium optimizes vitamin D status, raising it in people with deficient levels and lowering it in people with high levels. So magnesium helps, again, to prevent, kind of stabilize, help prevent issues with vitamin D toxicity. 
As they note too, it goes along with the one we just saw. Up to 80% of people do not consume enough magnesium in a day just to meet the RDA. Again, RDA is low. You should be shooting for above that. <laughs> that one's titled Magnesium Status and Supplementation Influence Vitamin D Status and Metabolism Results from Randomized Trial, published the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2018. Now, since vitamin A can reduce vitamin D toxicity and spares vitamin K, how can it be used? Because we'll find vitamin A has some other important effects as well as being part of our whole vitamin D conversation. Because vitamin A supplements are associated with a significant reduction in the death rate when given periodically to children. Vitamin A helps to prevent childhood death. Pretty clear. That is titled Vitamin A Supplementation and Child Mortality, a meta-analysis published in JAMA in 1993. As this article notes, the efficacy of vitamin A supplementation of young children is one of the best proven, safest, and most cost-effective interventions in international public health. Preventative vitamin A supplements should be given to all infants and young children up to six years of age, pregnant women, and postpartum women within six weeks after delivery. Now, here's the schedule that is recommended. I'm going to read this out for you, and I think you'll be kind of shocked at some of these levels, but this is straight out of the literature. So the child from ages zero to five months should be giving 50,000 units of uh, international units of vitamin A with each DPT polio dose. So that's pretty much on the schedule every two months for a while. The child from six to 11 months, 100,000 units every four to six months. From 12 to 59 months, 200,000 units every four to six months. And women within six months of delivery, 200,000 units given in two doses more than 24 hours apart, so they have a total of 400,000 units of vitamin A. How many people are doing this? How many doctors are recommending this? And what they found was that on average, child mortality was reduced by at least 23%. Now here's an interesting one. Further analysis has shown that percentage reduction was even greater in those who actually received the doses of vitamin A. So yeah, it's kind of important to actually take it to get the effects here. <laughs> Side effects are rare. Studies have suggested that this kind of dosing will not cause any important risk of long-term side effects or toxicity issues. That is titled Recommendations for Vitamin A Supplementation, published in the Journal of Nutrition, 2002. So here's my therapeutic strategy. Here's what I recommend for you all to do. First, like I say, it's really ideal to measure your vitamin D levels and use whatever dose you need to get it at 60 nanograms and milliliters and above. So if you need 1,000, if you need 5,000, if you need 10,000, it's whatever you need. Get your level done, start taking it, measure it again until you get it up to that range. If you have less than 40 nanograms per milliliter on the test, I suggest you start with 5,000 units a day. If your level between 40 and 50, start with 3,000 units a day. 
Then you can retest after about a month, see what those levels are. If you are acutely ill, so you're coming down with a cold, any kind of problems, use 50,000 units per day of vitamin D for several days, then 10,000 units per day while symptomatic until everything clears up. Always, always, always use vitamin K with vitamin D, at least 10 micrograms of vitamin K2 per 1,000 units of vitamin D. The form we use is technically called M7K2. We have it, uh, Dr. Vitamins, with both K and D combined in the right proportions, or they are also in separate products. Because I also recommend that you use a higher dose of K2 if you're dealing with any kind of other issues, particularly cardiovascular issues, calcification problems. We haven't seen really any side effects with these large doses of K2. It's safe and effective. You can use up to, I've seen studies, 42 milligrams of K2 without any issues. For magnesium, again, I suggest that you measure it. Again, the lab values are wrong. The ideal reading is 2.5 nanogram per milliliter. And if it's two or less, I am going to advise my patient supplement with magnesium in order to bring those levels up. If it's low, take three or 400 milligrams twice a day. And again, test after about a month and see where your levels are. If your levels aren't available, you can easily take three or 400 milligrams per day. And quite frankly, orally, it's almost impossible to get an overdose of magnesium. What you'll do is just get some diarrhea, <laughs> and then you just reduce your dose. Vitamin A. You can easily add this at 10,000 units per day. Now, if you become ill, if you start coming down with something, jump that to 300,000 units per day for three to five days, and then back it down again. This will oftentimes, particularly in combination with vitamin D, get rid of your colds very quickly. I also recommend, and this is something they've talked about in another podcast here, but vitamin C per illness, if you are having problems, in addition to the vitamin D and vitamin A, add vitamin C 3,000 milligrams every 15 to 20 minutes. Again, when you start getting loose stools, start backing the dose down. Again, there's, it's impossible to overdose on vitamin C. Again, you're just going to get a little loose stool or diarrhea, and you just back the dose down from there. So here's the take-home message. Getting your vitamin D levels up to optimal ranges is safe, it's easy to do, and it has significant payoff in health and well-being. I highly suggest you do this as soon as possible. And I'll note that most of this information, I just presented recently at the National Conference for the Occupational and Preventative Medicine Society. This is something that doctors should be aware of as well as lay people. If your doctor is not aware of it, please tell them about it. They can listen to this podcast (laughs) or see my uh, stuff on Facebook. So thanks for listening. I hope you found this useful and have yourself a good and healthy day.